Hi. It's good to see you all. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. We've got six months of sermons to catch up on, so we're going to be here for... No, I'm just kidding. But this morning we're coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so if you turn in your Bibles there, um, and I just also would like to pray as well for the blessing of the Lord to be with us. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for fellowship. Lord, we thank you for the bond of faith, and we thank you for... Uh, Lord, the peace that transcends all understanding. We pray that you would be present in your word. Lord, we know that you use the preaching of your word. And so we pray, Father, that you would lay us bare before you this morning. Lord, we pray that you would show us areas where we need to grow, show us areas where we need to change. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you. Lord, that you would show them the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ on the cross, that they might believe and be saved. And we thank you for this morning, Lord. I pray um, just for help as we come to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in a series, I guess, on small groups. And so it's kind of difficult to do expository preaching in a topical setting. But we're going to do that this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, this isn't going to be a strict exposition of the text. I'm not going to teach you everything that there is to be learned here. But there is a lot to be said here for how we understand our relationships within the body of Christ and how we understand our relationship to the person of Christ. But before we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I just want to start with two sort of foundational truths that I think we, we all would do very well to wrap our minds around. First, our horizontal relationships say something about our vertical relationship. Right? So, how we interact with people around us, how we interact with our family, how we interact with brothers and sisters in the church says something about how we interact with God and how we believe that God interacts with us. That's why the two great commandments, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that will be reflected in how you are loving your neighbor, those around you. Think also about the the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. If you don't respect your earthly father, how can you have respect for your heavenly father? And now that's, that's, you can, yes, you can say that, well, my father was terrible, and, and this, that, and the other. But generally speaking, the Bible calls us to respect positions of authority and to understand where we are within those places of authority. So, as a son, even if my father is not reputable or respectable, I still have have an honor that I owe to my father because he is in the position of my father. And the same thing goes with how we view police officers. The th- same thing goes for how we view state officials and even the President of the United States. That though they may not be respectable, we as citizens still owe them uh, the, the respect of their position. And that goes with no matter who is in office or where. Take also as an example First John. How we treat the brethren there demonstrates whether or not the love of God is in us. So that, that it's true, if you have tasted of the goodness and the grace of God, you will reflect the goodness and the grace of God to those around you. So that's the first thing I kind of want to lay as a foundation, that our horizontal relationships, how we interact with people around us, says something about how we interact with God. 
Secondly, rugged individualism and personal autonomy, the foundational pillars of American society, are not Christian virtues. They are important for how we interact in the world. They are important for how we understand our responsibility as American citizens. But they are not Christian virtues. They are not helpful within the church. They are a flat denial of what it means to be a Christian because we know as Christians that the pursuit of personal autonomy is what led Adam to partake of the fruit. That he wanted knowledge autonomous or apart from God, and so he partook of the fruit because the fruit promised a knowledge of good and evil, a knowledge that only God had. And so we see that the desire to be self-governing is what stumbled Adam. We also see the fact, and we're going to see this in Corinthians, that one of the difficulties that the Corinthians faced was bringing the culture of Corinth into the church. And so, I don't know if you've ever heard it said that the difficulty that the Lord had was not bringing Israel out of Egypt, but it was getting Egypt out of Israel. Right? And so, that's how we all are. As American Christians, our primary allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His divine monarchy. But we have learned things from our culture particularly in New England. You see cultural differences, cultural variances the more and more that you travel. And you see, a cultural, you see cultural distinctives in New England that are strictly New England, but they are not Christian virtues. And the way that we need to interact with our culture and the way that we were brought up is the same way that Paul commands the Corinthians to interact with their culture and the way that they were brought up, and namely that we are called to exemplify and be citizens of the kingdom of heaven first. That we are called to be good Christians before we're called to be good New Englanders or good Midwesterners. That the way that Christ calls us to act is a renunciation of all other allegiances and a following the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So again, the two pillars that I want to build on are first, our horizontal relationships say something about our vertical relationships. And secondly, the cultural virtues of the day are not necessarily Christian virtues. That we are called to be something other. And again, that comes back to the the Corinthian problem. You see, they were Corinthians who had been converted to Christianity. And I don't know if you know much about the city of Corinth, but they say that the city of Corinth was horrendously wretched. There was rampant sexual immorality. There was just filthy and disgusting things going on. And what do you see in the church of Corinth? You see a man sleeping with his mother. You see... Filthy, rampant, disgusting wickedness going on in the church of Corinth. The Corinthian city was being brought into the Corinthian church and Paul's command was, cleanse the leaven out. Relinquish what you were and live the Christian life. Live under the Lordship of Jesus. You also see this in the the sheer amount of verses that the Apostle Paul speaks of meat sacrificed to idols. Today we read about meat sacrificed to idols and we're thinking, geez, just eat the steak. You know, don't ask questions. But the, the difficulty was that the Corinthians saw, because of the, the cultural 
bias within the temple, they had a strong difficulty renouncing idolatry and following the living God in such a way that meat became a stumbling block for them. So they were having a hard time relinquishing the pagan religion and embracing Christ. And you see this also as Paul is talking to them about how to practice the Lord's Supper properly. They were practicing the Lord's Supper as they would practice a pagan feast. And Paul's commandment is no. That's not right. As Christians, you are not stratified based upon class. You are not stratified based upon wealth. But we are all one in Christ. Therefore, we partake together. He was commanding the Corinthians to get Corinth out of the church and to live a consistent Christian life. These issues brought disunity within the body. And one of the main features that you'll see as you read through the book of Corinthians is pride. The book is just saturated with the pride of the Corinthians as they are even arguing over who is it better to follow. Is it better to follow Paul or Cephas or Apollos or Jesus? You you see the pride just dripping. You see the pride dripping as you have rich members getting drunk at love feasts that were supposed to be a, a commemoration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have the richer members getting getting drunk while the poorer members are standing outside starving. It's pride. You see that as we're going to get into the discussion of spiritual gifts. That they are exalting those who have more miraculous gifts. Those who, who are, are more of a, a face of the congregation. They're exalting them to the dishonor and the shame of the lesser members of the congregation. So you see this book just dripping with pride. Dripping with self-exaltation. With, with selfish ego-driven uh, actions. At the root of it was pride. But another very important theme in Corinthians that's, that's tied to this. Why do we, in a sense, renounce cultural allegiances? Because we are being brought into the kingdom of God, the church. The church does not belong to a particular country. The church does not belong to a particular group of individuals. But the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who sets the rules. He's the one who sets the standard of life and conduct and godliness. And so as we look at how the Corinthians were acting, they were acting in contradiction to the commandments of the Lord within the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul is appealing to them, saying the Word of the Lord is clear. This is how you need to comport yourselves. This is how you need to act within the house of God, the church. But if we affirm that the church belongs to God, we must also affirm that the church is not simply a building, but the church is every person that the Lord has placed His Spirit within. And so if the church belongs to God, and I belong to the church, then by extension, I myself belong to God. And I need to base my actions... I need to base my allegiances upon His Word, and I need to model my life after the living Head, Jesus Christ, which looks like living a life of meekness, lowliness, humility, righteousness, self-sacrifice. That's what the Christian life is to look like as we affirm that we don't any longer belong to this world, we don't belong to the flesh, but we belong to the Lord, Jesus Christ. 
The church is comprised of those who are regenerate, of those who have had the Spirit of God placed within them, and they belong to God. Those are some of the foundational commitments that Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. And so as we come here to chapter 12, where Paul talks about the the church, the temple, the body of Christ, fundamentally the church is the individuals who know the Lord and the church belongs to God. Those are are very important things to keep in mind. So we're going to look first at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes there, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So here at the very beginning, it seems kind of odd, right? You have Paul say, We're going to talk about spiritual gifts, but first I want to spend two verses talking about how it's the Spirit that leads you away from mute idols. It can seem kind of odd, but but I think this is Paul's reasoning. The Spirit who works salvation is the Spirit who also gives you gifts to minister in the body. You can't separate those two things. You can't separate the gift of salvation from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there, there is a large contingent of Christians in the United States who want to do that. The, the Pentecostal charismatic movement wants to separate the, the, the blessing of salvation from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But they are not separate actions. When the Spirit saves you, when the Spirit begins His work and, and begins to change your heart and, and faith begins to well up and you start to see your sins as disgusting and turn away from them, that same action is the baptism of the Spirit. There are not two separate actions within the household of God. And so Paul is recognizing here <coughs> that you were pagans. You were led astray to various idols. And the only way that you could renounce that, the only way that you could go from saying Jesus is accursed to Jesus is Lord is through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And so, again, Paul is beginning the context of the body of Christ with salvation, with regeneration, that this all starts with the first work of the Spirit in imparting the Gospel and giving us eyes to behold the beauty of Christ. And so if you are with us this morning and you don't know the Lord, I urge you to beg Him for mercy. To, to beg Him to renounce, to beg Him to reveal Himself to you in such a way that you see the falsehood of the idolatry that you are pursuing and the glory of His Gospel so that you will see the destitution that you are living in. Because ultimately, everything that comes after this, if, if you're not saved, it doesn't mean anything. That through the work of the Spirit, we are brought into union with Christ. And that union with Christ results in the formation of the church of the living God. And everything that Paul is going to write after this is for people who are part of the church. And he continues on. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-7. through Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Look at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Again, that's tying the Spirit who works salvation to the Spirit who gives gifts. It's, it's the same Spirit, and it's the same work. If you have been saved, you have been given a gift for the common good. It's, it's not as though the Lord saves and then gives some gifts, but the others He kind of throws away. If you are saved, that Spirit is working the, the work of salvation within you, and He is also giving you gifts to serve and edify the body. Each and every person is a part of the body, just as every part of my body is a part of my body. Right? You don't, you don't look at me and say, well, I really like Alex, but I really hate his arm. And you, you, don't, you don't look at me and think, well, I, Alex does stuff, but his hands, they just they don't do anything. Right? Everything that I have is instrumental, in a sense, to who I am, but not that if I lost my arm, I wouldn't be any less me. But everything that I have is part of me, and everything that I have serves some purpose. Right? You, you can't just take a part of me out and not have me lose something that's important to me. Each and every member has a role to play. Every person is given a manifestation of the Spirit, a gift. And the important part here is that it is for the common good. Everyone has gifts that the Lord has given for the common good, which means that we should all be looking for and identifying those areas in which we can serve the Lord by serving our brothers and sisters around us. So the Spirit gives salvation, but the Spirit also gives particular gifts to each member of the body. And as if that were not enough, the Spirit also empowers our usage of those gifts. It can seem paradoxical, but this should both humble us and embolden us, right? Because earlier in his letter, Paul criticizes the Corinthians for hero worship. You know, saying, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They were arguing about which early church hero they followed, and that was largely due to the gifting of those particular individuals. Apollos wasn't an apostle, but he was a phenomenal preacher. And so they all looked to Apollos as this gifted speaker, and so they wanted to follow Apollos. Paul was, was a, a pillar of the church. Peter was a pillar of the church. But Paul says, if Apollos is a good preacher, it's for your sake. If I am a good apostle, it is for your sake. The, the Spirit is the one who gives the gifts. He says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All of the gifts that we have, any of us here who have gifts, which is all of us, we have those gifts because they have been given to us by the Lord. That should humble us before His throne because nothing that we have can we take ultimate credit for. Our gifts come from the Spirit, but more than that, our, our exercising of those gifts is empowered by the Spirit. So our activity in doing these gifts rests upon the work and the, the power of the Spirit behind them, which also should humble us, but that should embolden us, should it not? I think of, of when the Lord commanded Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why, why would He command him to be strong and courageous? Because Joshua was a good leader? 
No, because I am with you. Because I've given you my commandments. I'm, I'm coming with you. The reason that you don't have to fear the nations that you're going into is because the Lord your God is with you. It should empower us to use these gifts. It should embolden us to use these gifts. It is humbling because we cannot take credit, but it is emboldening because we are backed by the Spirit of God. As we step out to love and serve one another, as we step out to speak a word of encouragement, as we step out to speak a word of of exhortation or to tell someone that we think they're doing something wrong, as we step out to do these things, we do so humbly reliant upon the work of the Spirit. For apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. So the Spirit gives gifts. He gives activities to each one of the members. He, uh, he empowers us to use them. And then Paul continues on in 8-10. through 10. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and another the interpretation of tongues. Now, I don't think the purpose of this passage is for us to develop a questionnaire and a spiritual inventory list to see how we need to be serving the Lord. I don't think that's the point of this passage. I think the point of this passage is to say there's a multiplicity of gifts in the church. There are a large number of ways that you can serve one another. The thing that we need to recognize is that those things are from the Lord and that they need to be used for the Lord. So, preaching was not mentioned there. I don't think preaching is any less of a gift than healing. Worship leading was not mentioned there. I don't think worship leading is any less of a gift than anything listed there. So the the debate about whether or not we have one of these particular gifts is really a non-issue. The question is, how has the Lord gifted you? And are you using those gifts to serve the body for His glory and for His honor? We can debate endlessly over whether or not these gifts have ceased. We, we can debate those things forever and we'll probably never come to an opinion so definitive that everybody agrees on it. But what we can agree on is the fact that Paul here is encouraging Christians to care about one another. That Paul is exhorting Christians, you have been given a gift. You have been given something by the Lord that makes you an instrumental part of the body and you need to use that gift for the common good. That is what the Christian life looks like. That's what the Christian life looks like. It doesn't look like rugged individualism and sort of renegade Christianity. It looks like us loving and serving and caring for each other in the way that the Lord has given us to do so. And so Paul, Paul well, just as, as another aside, I've been asked, not, not here, but I've been asked by numerous people, what is the difference between a natural gift and a spiritual gift? And, and I answer that just simply by saying nothing and everything. Right? Because you have... Some people are very good teachers in the world, but they are not qualified to teach in the church. And there are some people who are very good teachers in the world who should be teaching in the church, but are not because they are still waiting for the Lord to impart to them some divine gift that they need to be exercising within the body. And so I I, I take John Wolfenden as an example. John, did God give you the ability to play guitar by divine fiat? 
No, right? It's, it's a natural gift that the Lord gave you. Of course the Lord gave you musical ability. He gave you a voice that could sing. He, he's given John the ability to play the guitar, but that wasn't apart from John's practice and use of that guitar. That wasn't separate from John's natural ability with music. And so I think that our natural gifts that the Lord gives us, we shouldn't look at those as unspiritual, but whatever gifts the Lord has given us, we should employ for the service of the body. That, that, that again, is the point of this passage. Not that, that there's a part of us that's spiritual and a part of us that's not spiritual, and we need to keep the not spiritual part out so that we can be spiritual in church. That's not the point. The point of this is that if you are in faith union with Jesus, you are in faith union with one another, a part of the body of Christ, the local church. And you need to be exercising your gifts in the local church. Paul continues in, in verse 11. Again, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So again, you see this unity of the Spirit in giving gifts. It's it's not as though a Spirit has given John the ability to play the guitar and a different Spirit has given Gary the ability to play the guitar. The same Spirit who has given them both the ability to do what they do has given them that so that they can build the church. And that's why we have all been given gifts, right? It's not for self-exaltation. It's not for self-edification. The Lord has given each and every one of you a gift so that you can come together and communally grow the church by His empowering work. In the same way that you see a baby grow into adulthood, so we need to work together, one another, and grow the church into full maturity. And you see the Apostle Paul say that, that, that he was preaching, that he was ministering so that, that the churches might be grown into maturity. And that ultimately is, is what the body of Christ is for, that we would mutually edify, mutually benefit one another so that the church grows. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not really about any one of us here. But it's about the glory of Christ. It's about Him being magnified. It's about Him looking great and Him receiving praise and honor. But another thing that this gives is as you think about the fact that the Lord apportions gifts according to His will, that really ought to place us in a place of contentment, should it not? I don't know if you have ever said or heard someone say, man, I really wish I could blank... And then I would really be able to serve the church. Then I would really be able to serve the Lord. I really wish I could sing like so-and-so. Then I could really praise the Lord and bless and edify the congregation. Or, I wish I could really play the guitar because then I'd really be able to serve. I see them up there leading worship. They're really serving the Lord. I wish I could really serve the Lord. Or preaching and teaching often get exalted, right? I wish if, if I could just preach, if I could just teach, then I could really bless the body. But the point of this is that the gifts you possess were given to you by the Spirit as He willed. Whether we like it or not, it is the will of God that I cannot preach like Charles Spurgeon. And it is the will of God that Gary cannot sing like Sandy Patty. And believe it or not, it's good for the body that that is the case. But the, the beautiful thing is, is the Lord is not going to bring me before His throne and expect the same level of service from me that He did from Charles Spurgeon, right? 
Because He has given me the gifts that He has given me, and I can only be faithful with the gifts and the abilities that I have. But the Lord has called me to be faithful with the gifts and the abilities that I have, right? In the same way that He has given you gifts. And He's not going to ask you to be responsible for someone else's gifts. He's going to be, to be asking you to be responsible for your own. Because He has not put you in this congregation as someone else. He has put you in this congregation with the gifts and the abilities that you have because this congregation needs you and it needs your gifts and the abilities that you have. So exercise them. The Lord hasn't given them to you by accident and He hasn't brought you here by accident. The Lord has given you these gifts by His will in the same way that He gave you salvation and He has placed you here by His will. And so Paul's commendation is live the Christian life. Be faithful to serve one another with the ways that the Lord has given you. Exercise your gifts diligently. Exercise your gifts faithfully for the mutual benefit and edification. Because the Lord gives gifts to each one individually. You know what that means, right? It means that you have been given a gift. You have been given a gift. Do you know what it is? Do you know how the Lord has gifted you? I'm sure that there are some of you in here who are saying, I have no idea how I can serve the congregation. Well, let me just give you a place to start. Pray. First, pray that the Lord would give you an area to serve in. But then, also, pick three people from within the congregation and pray for them faithfully. Just start that week, every day. I'm going to sit down for ten minutes and I'm going to pray for three names and and I'm going to maybe try and see what's going on in their life and find out how I can pray specifically. And then the next week, keep praying that the Lord would give you an area and an opportunity to serve, but pick three different names and pray for three more people. And there, there is nothing that you could do that would be better or more significant than to bring anybody's name before the throne of God and beseech Him on their behalf for grace and knowledge and wisdom. There is nothing you can do that's more significant than that. And so if, if you don't know where to serve, if you don't know how to start, start there. The Lord has given you a gift. His Word says that He has. And He will show you what it is. And maybe it's praying for people. Maybe that's the gift that He has given you. But start there. Start with a heart that is loving and concerned for your brothers and sisters around you. But if you are here and you know what your gift is, my question is, are you using it? Are you exercising it? Are you familiar with the parable of the talents from Matthew 25, 14-30? Now, a talent there is not an ability, but it's an amount of gold. And so I, this isn't a direct correlation, I don't think. But I think that this is, is significant because what it says is that the Lord demands that whatever He gives to us, we multiply. Right? And so if the Lord has given us faith, His demand is that we multiply it. If the Lord has placed His Son within us, His demand is that we grow in holiness and conformity to His Son. If the Lord has given you abilities and gifts, He expects that you will be using them, that you will be cultivating them, and that you will be growing in them. So as the Lord demanded from His servants... The one who, who was given ten talents, it grows another ten. The one who was given five talents, it grows another five. The one who was given one talent, buries it in his backyard, does absolutely nothing with it. Right? And so the ten talents is commended, the five talents is commended, but the man who buried his talent in the backyard was cast out. 
Don't bury your gifts. Don't bury the abilities that the Lord has given you for the service of the body. But at least just use them on Sunday mornings. Use them when you can. Use them when you have opportunities. The Lord has given you gifts and He expects that you use them. And so now at this point in the passage, Paul is, is done sort of with laying some theological framework and he moves into an extended analogy comparing the church to a body. But before we go there, I just I want to highlight sort of where did we just come from? So the Spirit is the one who gives salvation. The Spirit who gives salvation by the same work gives us gifts to serve the body, to each one individually. If you are a Christian, you have a gift. The Spirit then empowers us to use the gifts that we have been given. And the Lord expects us to use them. So that's sort of 1 Corinthians 12, 1-11. Next we move in to 12-13. through There Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So the amazing thing here is how the, all the variety that you see, right? There are many people, there are many ethnicities. I mean, if you just think about the different personalities, the different life circumstances represented in this room and that the Lord has saved us out of, the, the church is an amazing organism, right? Because the Lord's salvation extends to the most unlikely characters. But the Spirit that was placed in each one of you and also in me is the same Spirit. So that there is a bond and that there is a unity. There are individual parts, but all of these parts, as Paul says in in Romans 12, are part of one another. In such a way that when one member suffers... In such a way that when one member rejoices, when one member is honored, when one member is struggling, the whole body is struggling. In in the same way that it would be ridiculous for me to smash my left hand with a hammer and say, well, I'm not feeling that much pain. It was only my left hand. My left hand is still part of me. I still am in pain. And and it's the same thing. There's, There's not members of the body who are less significant than any other member of the body. But the Spirit that was placed in us at salvation is the same Spirit. And by that Spirit, we are united in Christ and we are united to each other by the bond of faith. That's an amazing thought. The same Spirit that lives in me also lives in you. The same salvation, the same hope that I have are your hope. We have so many things to be unified on. But we are all unified through the work of the Spirit. And now just briefly, I want to talk here for a minute about church membership. Because many people want to take this passage and point to the universal church. And I think rightly so. But here, so here when Paul is saying that the Spirit does a work in the hearts of men and women, it's the same work that He has done for 2,000 years. And that we, when we are brought into union with Christ, are also brought into the church universal, which starts with the earliest disciple and ends when the Lord returns. So we're united in that. It's one of the glorious truths of the Bible. But then why the local church? And this is where I think this gets very important. How many churches are there in Southbridge? I I don't ten maybe, maybe more, probably more. I have no idea. How many churches do you think there were in Corinth? 
1. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. There was one church in Corinth. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the church, there was no distinction between the universal church and the local church. It was all one church. There weren't various congregations, but there was one. There was no such thing as a church hopper because there was only one choice in Corinth. If you were a Christian, you went to this church church. You are committed to one local body, to one local church. And so when Paul commands the Corinthians to expel the man participating in gross sexual immorality, that man is being cast out of the Corinthian church, but he is also being cast out of the church. To say that this passage is simply about the universal church is is an oversimplification because Paul did not have that distinction in mind. So Paul's following admonition about being part of the body is not simply about us being part of the universal church, but it is about being an active and integral member of a local church. Paul's charge is that you be part of the church, therefore you need to be committed to a local church. Not hopping around based upon which church you feel suits your own needs. Right? Because Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians 12, the church is not about suiting your needs. The church is about you being an integral member and a part of the body. Now, there, there are biblical grounds for leaving a local church, just as there are grounds for having a limb amputated, right? But neither decision should be taken lightly. And neither decision should be done rashly or for the wrong reasons. 1 Corinthians 12 is not about what you get out of a church, but it is about what you put into the church. Therefore, joining yourself to a church and committing to one body. I mean, if, if you think about, what, what if your stomach got commitment issues? You know, what if, what if your stomach was all of a sudden like, man, I really like that guy's biceps better. I'm going to go see what it's like to be part of his body. You know, what, what if you're... It's ridiculous, right? I mean, you wouldn't be able to survive. The the body would just be constantly in flux. That's not how bodies are composed. And so as we think about committing to a local body, a local church, we need to commit and be invested and involved in one local body, in one local church. And so that, I think, is what Paul has in mind. And so with that in mind, Paul continues. 1 Corinthians 12, 14-20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, there would be this, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I was trying to think of of something that would... I mean, Paul's using an analogy, but what what could we do to illustrate this analogy? How many in here have seen the Adams family? Okay, there are a few. That's good. This will make sense then. Do you remember Thing from the Adams family? It's just a hand, right? I used to hate the Adams family. My brother loved it, but I hated it because it was just gross. I couldn't handle this grotesque hand and this basically ball of hair. You know, it just grossed me out. But you have in the Adams family thing, who was this hand that kind of ran around like a grotesque spider, right? Now, thing 
could do some things, right? Thing could, uh, he could do things, but Thing couldn't do a lot of things. Thing couldn't really communicate. Thing was just kind of a, he was just an extraneous part of the show. We don't want the church to represent Thing, right? We don't want the church to just be a giant hand. The church needs to be a body. We, we can't all have the same gifts, and I think that's why the, the, the Apostle Paul talks about the Spirit apportioning gifts. If we were all hands, the church would be a very grotesque thing. And so we all need to bring our gifts to the table and come and function together. But not only that, we also need to recognize the instrumentality of each one of us as we bring our gifts to the table. And, and Paul again alludes to this fact what, what if your right hand said, I'm going to go ahead and just vacation to the Bahamas. I'm, I'm taking the next month off. You, you, I mean, you could live, but at least I wouldn't have very much fun because I'm right-handed. But then think about, what if, what if your lungs took off? What if your heart was like, ah, I'm closed. Shop, shop's off for the next week. It's, it's ridiculous. And I think that's Paul's point, is that this is utterly ridiculous. To say that you are a member of the body, but to say that I'm not going to function like a member of the body, it's not workable. And I think that that's Paul's point. This scenario is crazy. The important point that Paul making is you, brother, you, sister, are an important part of the life of the church. You are an instrumental member of this body. If the Spirit has saved you, He has apportioned to you a gift. And it is important that you be here, and it is important that you exercise that gift. That's the Apostle Paul's point. Because if you decide that I'm not really necessary, if you decide that, well, I'm not really needed, I'm feeling overworked and tired, and you shouldn't feel overworked and tired in the body. I'm not saying that it's okay for that to happen. But, but if you should disconnect and say, oh, I'm not really going to participate anymore, that, it would be like my left eye saying, I'm, uh, I'm taking off. I'm kind of done. You can't do it. It would cause dysfunction. And again, this touches on the significance of church membership. Because often we will read passages like this and jump to the universal church. But, but Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking to individuals who are comprising a part of the local church and being an instrumental part of the body of Christ in Corinth. Each Christian is made a member of the local church, and the local church needs each member to function. They are, are in, the, in the same way that my arm needs to be joined to my body, you need to be joined to a local church. Because if you think about... If, if you sever a finger, you have a short amount of time before they can reattach it. The finger separated from the body will eventually wither and die. And we see that, I think, in Christians who kind of float between churches. You see a withering. You, you see a, a, a dryness to their faith. Whereas a vital connection to a local body is, is life-giving. Because that's the way that Christ designed it. He, he, Paul uses the analogy of the body, I think, for significant reasons because that's the way that things are. As we live out the Christian life, it is largely in the local church that we are living that life out. And so Paul continues, verses 21-26. through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul has just said that you all have gifts. Don't think yourself less significant or don't think another part more significant. Here Paul is saying, if you are an I or you think yourself significant, don't consider the rest of the body insignificant. We shouldn't exalt one gift over another because it's not as though the Lord has called some to a higher level of spirituality, therefore He gave them the gift of teaching. But the Spirit has called us all to be faithful with the gifts that He has given us and what He requires is the same from each of us and the reward at the same, at the end of the day, those who teach are not going to be given a greater reward, but we're all going to be given rewards based on how faithful we were with what the Lord had given us. If, if you're called to, to janitorial service, I, I don't, I mean, I, is that a spiritual gift? I don't know. If you're called to janitorial service, Paul's admonition is be the best janitor you can be. And, and if you exercise being a janitor better than someone with the gift of teaching exercises being a teacher, you in many ways are more commendable than that person who is sloughing off being a teacher. Just because you have the gift of gab <clears throat> does not mean that you are more holy in the local church than someone who is very good at hospitality. But Paul's point is whatever gift you have, use it to the best of your ability. Serve and love one another. And so the, the question here as we're thinking and and wrapping this up, is how does this relate to small groups? Why small groups? Where is the biblical command for small groups? And I'm going to tell you quite definitively, I don't have one. There's no biblical injunction for you need to be in a small group. You will find small groups throughout the New Testament. Jesus had 12 disciples. That was a small group, right? Paul traveled with a small group of men for the sake of ministry. You have small groups. But there's no command for a, a, there's no biblical command for a small group ministry. But let me read to you some of the things that the Bible does command of Christians. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers, sisters, are you heeding that command? Are you taking care lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading any of you to fall astray? Are you exhorting one another so that none of you may be hardened? Are there people in this congregation who are not in your family that you are doing this with? Are there people in this congregation who are not in your family that are doing this to you? Are you working out this one another together? Because this is a biblical command for a Christian. Or how about Galatians 6.2? There Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or again, Romans 12.15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Specifically, how are you bearing the burdens of one another in this congregation? Are you rejoicing with those who rejoice? Are you weeping with those who weep? Those in the congregation who are going through intense times of suffering, are you walking side by side and arm in arm with them? Because that is a command for the normal Christian life. There there might not be a small group command, but there's a lot of one another commands. 
Or how about Romans 12.13? Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. Are you helping to alleviate the needs of the saints through service or financial giving? How about this? Are you serving to show hospitality? Are you serving, seeking to show hospitality? Opening your home to invite people in to fellowship with you around the glories of Christ and the Word of God to pray together. Did you know that that was a command? That's the normal Christian life as the Apostle Paul has dictated it. You see, small groups are not necessarily a biblical command. But small groups are an incredibly helpful means by which these commands may be fulfilled. Are they the only way that these commands can be fulfilled? Absolutely not. But are they a helpful means by which these commands can be fulfilled? Yes. Because how many of us can get to know 120 or 150 people well? Not, not many. But how many of us can get to know 6 to 10 people well? We all can. We can all come together and learn to love and serve. And not to say that we form the small group and forget about everybody else. But it becomes a means, an avenue by which we can share our burdens. We can share our struggles. We can share the things that we are going through. The Corinthians struggled with bringing Corinth into the household of God. And brothers and sisters, don't bring New England into the household of God. The, the, the people in the South joke about the coldness of New England. You know, the weather is only matched by the coldness of the people. You know, that, that sort of thing. There, there's a sense of, of the iron backbone, you know, that we just kind of labor on. That's not Christian virtue. The life of Christ was characterized by humility, meekness, self, self-sacrifice in the service of others. The church is to be characterized by humility, by openness. But think about the fact that James commands the, the people that he's writing to to confess their sins to one another that they may be healed. Now, I'm not talking about open confession that we would confess our sins to everyone in the congregation, but is there someone in this church who knows the things that you struggle with on a daily or weekly basis? Are there people who know the sins that you continue to stumble and fall into? Are there, are there people who are praying for you and holding you accountable for those things? Is there, are there people in this congregation that you know what they're struggling with and that you're praying for and actively involved in trying to support them? And the question becomes, how do you get there? And, and again, I think a small group is an incredibly helpful means to bring about deeper gospel-centered fellowship. Because one of the fears is that these things would kind of become judgmental finger-pointing sessions. But that is contrary to the Gospel, right? Because in the Gospel, what do we find? In the Gospel, we find Christ taking to Himself our sins and bearing the wrath and the penalty that we deserve. The Gospel points to the fact that if there is anyone wretched on earth, it is me. And so as we talk to each other about the things that we struggle with, none of us is starting from a point lower or higher than anyone else. But we need to be informed by Gospel grace knowing that my sin is as putrid as everybody else's sin and as we struggle together, we are starting from roughly the same place. Some of us might be a little further on. Some of us might be a little more mature. But that maturity should not breed judgmentalism. That maturity should breed grace and humility. And that is what would characterize a Gospel-centered small group, that Christ would be magnified, that His Gospel grace would be shown glorious and victorious. And that ultimately is what Paul is pointing us to, right? 
He's pointing us to the fact that we, by the Spirit, have partaken of Christ together. We have been crucified with Him. And that brings us to communion. Because what what is Paul talking about immediately before this in chapter 12? He's talking about the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's table. Because if there is anything that demonstrates our unity in Christ, it's as we come together and partake of these elements. That we are biting the same loaf of bread just as the same body was rent asunder for our sake. As we partake of the wine, we are partaking of the same blood that was spilt by His heavenly Father for the sake of sinners. That by union with Christ, our sins were placed upon His shoulders. My sins, your sins, they were present. As God meted out His judgment, it was my judgment. It was your judgment. As we partake of these elements, it is demonstrating that we have partaken the fellowship and the communion with Christ in His sufferings and that our hope is ultimately the expectation of His return. There's nothing that demonstrates the unity of the body more than partaking communion together. And so I urge you, as as we come together to examine yourself, does, does your demonstration of partaking community demonstrate the unity and the communion that you show on a daily basis with your brothers and sisters around you? Do you care about your brothers and sisters? Are you involved in their life? Do you demonstrate that you love them as much as you love the other things in your life? And I pray that, pray that we think about that and as we come to this communion table that we would consider again the fact that Jesus counted everything as a loss. And then He gave up His position in heaven so that He could take to Himself flesh, so that He could become a servant, so that He could die for His people. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that we would be willing to sacrifice for each other, that we would be willing to serve each other, maybe not to the point of death, but to the point that it costs us something. So consider that as we come to the table. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we, Lord, we're in awe of what You have done in our midst. Lord, that we would be made partakers of Your Son, that through Your Son's flesh and blood we would have union with You. Lord, that that, that union would bring us into union with each other, Lord. And just how all of this works out is, is a mystery, Lord, but it is a glorious mystery. And I pray that You would put these things on our mind and that You would impress them upon our heart, Lord, and that we would know something of what it means to be one as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that we may be one as You are one. Lord, help us to know that unity. Help us, Lord, to, to grow in our love and care and concern and harmony and unity with one another. Lord, I pray that there would be a genuine love for the brethren in this congregation, Lord, that we would be those who, who fight together for, for each other, that we would love and serve and pray for and be there for one another. Lord, help us. Help us to have true fellowship and intimate communion, Lord, with You first, but may that communion with You overflow into our communion with everyone else. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.